This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard's the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. He is also available for any open Supreme Court seats. And I say that, Richard, because yesterday it was reported that Justice Breyer would retire from the Supreme Court after 27 years of service. I know you're always a fan of starting with foundations. So can you tell us a little bit about Justice Breyer and his judicial philosophy and the effect he's had on the court? Yes, I mean, I've known Stephen Breyer for a very long time because, again, we were fellow members of the academic community when he was a professor at Harvard. Um, I would say that I would describe him as kind of a straightforward, centrist, New Deal Democrat circa 1960. And I think he's deviated a little bit from that lately, but not all that much. What he did as he started out in profe- as an academic was what most professors did in the 60s and 70s, which is they take an existing set of New Deal institutions in the administrative state, and they think their job is to rationalize its application and to make sure that there are no fundamental deviations from the basic statutory principles of design. Uh, They were not people who wanted to question the system as a matter of first principle and to say, you know, I think the New Deal is a big mistake. Uh, They were incrementalists. They were menders and so forth. People like that, essentially, what they do is they keep the center secure. Uh, They don't go this way or that way in very far extremes. And he was very much like that. He was also a man who had, you know, some degree of real expertise. He was a very fine antitrust scholar and so forth. And that was at a time when there was actually something of a tumult in antitrust law on the question as to whether or not the dominant interventionist theories of antitrust law, which dominated throughout the Warren period, uh, Warren court period would carry on uh, thereafter. And then people like uh, Robert Bork and Richard Posner had the Chicago view, which uh, was in the ascendancy for a long time. It's now been under very sustained attack. Breyer, I would say, was sympathetic to, but not a part of the Chicago school. Uh, but I can recall instances where he sounded quite conservative. There was one day, for example, when he and I were, were together, I, he was introducing me to give a speech on the history of regulation in the Supreme Court. And he sort of fretted and moaned about the way in which his colleagues, he had dissented in an 8-1 decision, had treated some of these complicated cases associated with them, uh, the economics of telephone companies and how it is that you measure various sorts of costs. And he was taking at that point a fairly conservative position on that particular issue. As an administrative lawyer, I think he was somewhat further to the left. One of the central questions of administrative law is the extent to which you believe that uh, this court should defer to agencies on matters which you think are part of their expertise. And Breyer had a fairly broad definition of what expertise would count as. And so he was generally willing to defer on all sorts of things to agencies in charge of things like OSHA, for example, or like patents or even antitrust law to the extent that it was there. And uh, that would put him in tension to some extent with Justice Scalia, who was on and off again about that particular subject. I would not say that his views were traditionally any sense extreme. I would rather say that at the time that he was appointed, uh, he was a kind of a mainstream god. Uh, One of the things that was characteristic about that 
is he was quite deferential, for example, to the FDA, both before he got on the Supreme Court and afterwards. And I could recall one particular incident, if I have it correctly, where the question is that whether or not you had to go through the FDA to get all these kinds of approvals for things like medical marijuana and so forth. And his attitude was as well, if you know what uh, is going to work in a whiff of pot, what you do is you simply try to get all the various ingredients through the FDA uh, for approval. Well, it turns out pot is not a constant substance. It has God knows how many chemicals in it. If you're going to try to work that through the system of the FDA, you'd have to approve them one at a time. Uh, By the time you got to the year 3000, you may have gotten half of them through. Uh, But he was always a dogged defender of the administrative state on that side. Then uh, he did some philosophical work. He wrote what I thought was actually quite a poor book called Active Liberty, in which he tried to defend this sort of modest New Deal, updating the Constitution on one step at a time. Uh, The difficulty I had with that is updating sometimes seems to me to take matters from good and put them to worse. So the constant battle that you have is the battle between those people who believe that the important liberties are negative, the government cannot interfere with the way in which you speak or the way in which you use your property or the way in which you hire and fire workers or choose to be hired and fired. Uh, These are private kinds of decisions and the administrative state should be designed to make sure that these private decisions are properly recorded and enforced. Uh, His view of active liberty was very different. He thought that you could find in the Constitution some positive mandates in which the government would give you this, that, or the other kind of care. And even if it didn't mandate those, and I don't believe he thought that it did, he certainly thought he was very comfortable with redistribution through the administrative state. And he thought that updating the Constitution to create protection for these positive rights was the right way to go. I've always been very strongly opposed to that because the creation of positive rights in one group of individuals is the imposition of very serious positive duties on another. And in effect, what happens typically is the gains on the one side are going to be smaller than the losses on the other side. So that active positive liberties turn out to shrink the pie and to create more political harm. But he was in that view. Uh, Where would you sit him? I think it's fair to say, as the Wall Street Journal did this morning, that he was a responsible liberal. Uh, as they would term it, and that his replacement is apt to be something rather different from this, somebody from the hard left. And you know, they lamented the fact that you're going to see that stream. And I remember the two. I'm perfectly happy with a Justice Breyer on the Supreme Court. I think it would be terrible if you only had conservative justice. I think he did well. I think he's perfectly within his rights to retire. I wish him well in retirement. I hope he goes back to teaching and continues active so long as he is able. Uh, but I would say if you asked one, he would say he's a very solid, respectable member of the United States Supreme Court who added to its dialogue and something of its discourse. One disagrees with him on lots of occasions, at least I do, uh, but that never leads you to think that, uh-huh, oh, I wish this person were never there. Quite the opposite. I think he will be missed. Uh, it's not that he was a perfect justice, but I think he had the right judicial attitude, the right sense of values, and a basic sense of decency and integrity, which served him well throughout his period on the court. I have to ask you a quick follow-up about active liberty. Um, like you said, he he came on uh, came out in favor of uh, positive liberty, or what he called active liberty, um, instead of negative, or as uh, I guess Benjamin Constant, Isaiah Berlin may have called called modern liberty. Um, Is this the core dividing line between the liberal and conservative justices? Is this the worldview that that separates the two of them, that splits the camp of of, uh, protection from government abuses versus the, you know, a positive approach to uh, to, you know, the the government has has duties to you instead? 
Well, it's a partial mark. I would put it in the following way. I don't think there's anybody, except perhaps Justice Gorsuch and maybe Justice Thomas, who really believes that positive liberties are not part of the American Constitution. And, you know, in certain cases, it's built in as with rights to education and so forth and common carrier services. Many of these cases, I think, make uh, either very good sense or some sense whatsoever. Um, But they certainly is a marker in the sense that you will see more resistance on a whole variety of grounds to any effort to create massive wealth transfers if you're talking about the conservative bloc. The difficulty is they are not categorical in terms of the resistance. So what you see is a greater reluctance to go down that particular path. What you don't see is a dead opposition to it. To this extent, the New Deal certainly survives in modern political parlance. So the question is whether it's a reluctant embrace of something that you have to follow or it's an enthusiastic effort to try to expand. Uh, There are other things, I think, that also separate the two kinds of parties. I I think, in effect, what happens is if you're on the classical liberal side, you don't treat inequalities of wealth as being a sign of a corruption of the particular system. You don't even do that if it turns out that these inequalities to some extent correlated with race. What you would do if you're on that side of the line is say, show me where the defect is in the process that led to this particular outcome, and I'm with you. But if it's simply a result of ordinary individual voluntary choices and so forth, then in effect what happens is you let it ride. So what's going on is that you're going to see, for example, somebody like Breyer being consistently supportive of an affirmative action program where some of the conservatives will be more skeptical. Um, But I don't think that you would see somebody like Breyer saying, I'm going to force the states to do that. Uh, Further members of the left or or people of the court, people in this business who are further to the left might want to have that kind of compulsive situation. He doesn't. I thought he was very intemperate and indeed quite wrong in the way in which he uh, defended the the, uh, Biden vaccine mandate, claiming it's only that stood between us and total destruction. I thought the mandate was ill-conceived, not only as an administrative matter, but really as a matter of trying to understand what the underlying medical situations are. These rapid swings that you get, and you will get them and continue to get them in the frequency and intensity of various strands of COVID have very little to do with wearing masks. If anything, what you want to do is to make sure that people get a lot of fresh air, which masks don't give you, you have nice ventilation in places, let the natural immunity spread so that it can stop not by the vaccines, which won't work, uh, but by low-level asymptomatic infections, which will create some tragedies, but will prevent many more. So there's a whole kind of stuff on that. And it was kind of ironic in that last case, when he's sitting around basically excoriating everybody on the other side, talking about the importance of administrative expertise and knowledge of specialists in these various fields. And what he displayed on that particular case was in fact a very weak understanding of the whole under, uh, underlying problem. This is often the case that you get. Administrative expertise is often just a kind of a, basically a very thin veil to conceal enormous amounts of prejudices in favor of one agency or another. I've always been against or very uneasy about specialized agencies because it's more easy to stack them in favor of one side or another. And so I tend to favor courts of general jurisdiction. Uh, Justice Breyer went, I think, pretty much in 
in the opposite direction. I think amongst other areas, he was not a very strong patent lawyer, in part because what he did is he was constantly trying to figure out how to take the traditional terms and use them in a way that would weaken the basic structure of the patent law. So, I mean, we did have some fairly substantial differences, but this was never a question of temperament or intellect. It was a question of intellectual disagreements. And this is not like, for example, the reaction that many people have to the recent outbursts of Sonia Sotomayor, where it looks like it's just straight anger and resentment at people on the other side of the political spectrum. He was always, and I think will remain, a very dignified person. He has great deals of passion and he can get upset, but he's not a person who tends to play this for the most part as an ad hominem game. And in that sense, I think he will be missed. I have to get your reaction on um, possible replacements for Justice Breyer's seat. Uh, we'll, we'll get to the others who are, I think, uh, a bit more mainstream. But it has been floated that uh, President Biden could nominate uh, VP Kamala Harris for the seat. Uh, what, what would you think if that were to happen? Oh, my God. I mean, this woman is utterly incapable of doing any serious intellectual work. Uh, she just has no legal ability whatsoever. She has no political ability whatsoever. And so what you're doing is you realize, I think, as everybody has done that, uh, the best image of her was the fact that she had her political campaign implode even before the first primary. And she's been completely inept in everything that she's tried to do as a vice president. And the thought that in order to solve a short-term political problem for 2022 or 2024, he would inflict this person on the nation for the next 20 years is just bizarre and it's just crazy. She is simply not qualified, not remotely qualified uh, to this uh, by temperament, by intellect and so forth. The woman has proved herself to be a total bust. Uh, Now, the problem is Biden has a problem with her. I think it's probably the case if he runs, and I don't think he ought to run, uh, that he should not choose her as a vice president. She's too weak. He has to choose somebody else to that position. It may well be he wants to do this before 2022 in the hopes that he can boost the rather desperate situation that the Democrats find themselves in. My view is that if he tries to do this, it will provoke a fierce backlash on the part of everybody who understands that playing politics is not something that you do with one seat on the United States Supreme Court. So I would strongly oppose that. My guess is you'd even find some Democrats who would oppose that. I think in the end, she's not appointable. If it's 50-50 and she has to cast a deciding vote on whether she sits on the Supreme Court, I think you could say that she could not do it. She cannot be a judge in her own court. There are many bad ideas in the world, and this is one of the worst. I would much rather that Justice Breyer stay on the court uh, than that she ever get within a thousand miles of that seat. Okay, let's discuss uh, other actual nominees. Yeah, real then. candidates. So, so SCOTUS blog has named uh, two of the leading nominees as um, uh, Leandra Kruger, who currently sits on California's Supreme Court, and Katanji Brown, who is serving as a judge on the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Um, do you have any advice to either of them if they were to, one, go through the rat race of uh, a nomination, and, or, and two, if they were to then serve on Supreme Court? Look, I think it's extremely difficult. I was very disappointed in the very strategic pledge that Joe Biden made in South Carolina when his campaign seemed to be really to guarantee that he would appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court, uh, no matter what the circumstances turned out to be. I think these kinds of racial identity politics are really very, very dangerous, and I'm very strongly opposed to them. Uh, And I think, in effect, that what it does is it cuts out from the pool large numbers of people who might do better service to the nation than uh, women coming from this pool. Of course, anybody who 
Nobody should be excluded on the grounds of race. And if they're strong candidates, it's fine. I do not know about the works of these two justices or judges in the point that I would actually be prepared to comment on their merit. Um, I basically think that they've they've been selected in the wrong way. So I'm mildly, shall we say, the presumed negative on the fact that they are picked for the wrong reasons and that there are many people I know on the Democratic side, I guess, would be regarded as stronger. I I can't even think of the names right now. And I would, as ever with these things, you have to see the list and you have to read. Uh, What would I advise them if they get this? I would would say the first thing to do is not to come out swinging, not to sit there and to say, my appointment is necessary because of the massive and systematic injustices on matters of race and other issues that have taken place in the United States at large and in the Supreme Court in particular. I think those, those are extreme charges. I think it will alienate a large number of people, and rightly so. I, I think, in fact, that the record of the United States Supreme Court on race matters has not been perfect. Uh, but at this point, it's not even quite sure which way the errors go. Do tip too much in one direction or too much in the other. So I would think that you want to be a little bit humble. You want to be a little bit reflective. You'd want to get up there and say, listen, I've been strongly identified with somebody who has a certain kind of racial bias. But even though I am a black woman, I recognize that I'm a justice of the United States Supreme Court, and I'm there to do justice to all citizens, regardless of race, creed, and color. So I would essentially go back to the Martin Luther King line. I don't think a woman, a, a black woman can get the confirmation when the Senate is evenly divided, if essentially what she was prepared to do is to say, and when I get on there, I'm going to take care of these regressive and repulsive Republicans and show them that they really um, are not part of civil society. Uh, I think that would backfire for Biden and so forth. Now, the interesting question is, is this going to help him in 2022? My guess is it's not going to help him if he tries to do this for what I would regard as pretty transparent political reasons. And the logic would go something like this. There will be many people who will be enthusiastic about this particular appointment. Those people are already going to vote for Biden or for left-wing Democrats in any event. But there are large numbers of independents with whom Biden's position is very shaky. And an openly partisan nominee like that is likely to shift those people either into the neutral column or into a more conservative column. So my guess would be it would probably translate to a loss of several Senate seats and probably a dozen seats in the House by people who just simply say you can't go this far on this form of racial politics. I think that the large numbers of what Spiro Agnew used to call the silent American are increasingly upset about the kinds of divisive policies uh, that are being involved in this. It's shown most clearly in the way in which these school boards are in constant tension. And I think it would be a mistake for them to try to appeal to a small group at the risk of alienating everybody else. And so I would think that a peace offering, uh, bury the hatchet stance, a modesty stance, a a reaffirmation of what it is that you could do to help the system at large rather than a particular group. One last question for you, Richard. Um, You know, it used to be the case that Supreme Court justices were nominated on a widely bipartisan vote. Justice Breyer was confirmed 87 to 9. Uh, are we ever going to get back to that? And and do you think it actually might make sense for the GOP to just vote for President Biden's nominee, considering it's not going to change the philosophical makeup of the Supreme Court? 
Um, first of all, I don't think we're ever going to get back to that. Um, and things have become too polarized for too long. And it turns out that the kind of intergenerational compact that one used to have in which we would be respectful to your nominee if you're respectable to us, that's over. This ended in 1987, essentially, when Robert Bork became the nominee. If you recall, Nino Scalia was confirmed by a 98 to 0 vote. Um, in 1986, Bork goes down by something like 50 to 42, wasn't even that close. Thomas is a huge round. Every Republican nominee since that time has been faced with huge, relentless Democratic opposition. The Democrats, by and large, have done better with the Republicans in the nomination, not only people like Ginsburg and Breyer. Remember, this is all, both of these are after uh, Bork and Thomas, uh, but also with Kagan and Sotomayor. Uh, so uh, I don't think it can lift, survive where the Republicans essentially are mildly deferential to the Democrats and the Democrats are ferociously in opposition uh, to the Republicans. So I don't think it's going to happen. I think what you try to do in order to ease the pain and to make sure that you don't win 51 to 50 is to take somebody who's a little bit closer to the center than the median of your own party. There seems to be no willingness on the part of Biden to do that. In fact, I think what is most characteristic of his second year of office is he has doubled down on the mistakes of his first year. It's not as though he's changing personnel, not as though he's changing policy, uh, not as though he's apologizing for fast mistakes. Any person who thinks that withdrawal from Afghanistan has been a great success story, is not in touch with reality. So I don't see that happening. And I think the Republicans will respond in time. Uh, will they all unanimously vote against it? They will if it turns out that there's no peace offering uh, coming from the nominee. They won't, I think, if it turns out that uh, what she says is something which is a bit more uh, conciliatory. So uh, the answer is we're never going to get back to that. We can improve the situation, which is very, very bad. I think it's more likely than not that a Republican will win the presidency in 2024. I think it's a very high likelihood if it's anybody but Trump that's running. And I think one of the things that the Democrats should do is to be aware if they want to take a position of very strong presidential executive prerogative come 2025, they may well regret their decision. That'll do it for this episode of the Libertarian Podcast, which will continue so long as Richard is not nominated for the Supreme Court. You can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.